0: for some armchair time-traveling. This is Chapter 220 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa T, and coming up, we head to New York's Lower East Side in the early 1900s, where author Linda Cohen Leugman introduces us to a young female matchmaker with a touch of magic. Then, Christine Wells chats with us about her new novel featuring the real-life World War II heroine who inspired the James Bond character Miss Moneypenny. Odds are, when you think of a story featuring a matchmaker, you're thinking rom-com. But in her new novel, The Matchmaker's Gift, author Linda Cohen-Leugman views matchmaking through a historical lens. Set in the early 1900s, she introduces us to a young and talented woman who is better at doing her job traditionally held by men and the struggles she faces as a result. Add a touch of magical realism, and you end up with a story that Linda calls her most joyful novel she shares with us how it all started.
1: So in March of 2020, my daughter called me on a Tuesday crying and said, we just got an email from the school. We have to be out by Sunday because um, she was a junior in college and her school was one of the first to send kids home. So she came home and she actually brought her roommate with her, which, um, You know they had missed they were missing out on half of their junior year and it was a very nice thing to have a roommate like i mean i have a guest room in my house which was very nice and so the roommate stayed there but at least they were together because it gave them you know a sense of connection and it gave them i don't know it just gave them something that was a little bit better than just going home alone (laughs) in the middle of college and so we did the same things that everyone else did during COVID. We ate a lot and we binge watched TV, but before they came, my house had been a house of men. I was living with my husband and my teenage son and my dog, who was a boy. And when the girls came home though, the young women, I should say, the conversation around the dinner table was really elevated. You know, We had conversation before they came, but it wasn't the same as having two college age people who were literally going from, class right to the dinner table you know they had a lot to talk about and they had a lot to say and they're very bright and very ambitious and we talked a lot about women's issues um which i wasn't talking about with my husband and my son and my dog (laughs) and so you know they were discussing sort of some things they were facing as women in college and they were asking me about some of my work experiences and things that i had faced and that was sort of where my head was at that was swirling around in my head and at the same time we were binge watching um Indian matchmaking on Netflix. That was one of our first binges. And when we had finished all of those episodes, my daughter's roommate, whose name is Adele, turned to me and said, you know, my grandmother used to be an Orthodox Jewish matchmaker. And she took out her phone and she pulled up on her phone, this article from the New York times, um, who had written an article which included her grandmother, you know, about matchmakers in Brooklyn, her grandmother, there's a big picture of her grandmother front and center. And, um, in the article they talked about a woman's file cabinets that held all the records to all of her matches and when i read that as a reader you know i immediately thought of that children's book that we read you know the mixed up files of mrs Basil E. frankweiler and i thought I, it would be a great book like a matchmaker and all of these files and maybe a granddaughter and I just said, you know, Adele, I really kind of want to write a matchmaking story. And she said, I said, would you mind? And she's like, no, why do I, you know, fine, go ahead. Um, And I talked to my agent and I had been working on another book at the time. But the next day after I just mentioned it to her, she called me and said, I've been thinking about this all night. I really want to talk to your editor about it and ask her about this. And so she did. And both of them felt the same way. They wanted that story. It was like they wanted to read it right then. Like, I think it was part of the times that we were in that they wanted, it just sounded like a story that would make everybody feel good and they just wanted to read it. So I sort of put aside what I was working on and wrote it. Um, And that's how it started. But a matchmaking story we would think would be if I say that to you, you know, you think romance, but I write historical fiction. So that was, the, that was the problem, right? I had to figure out how I was going to come at it from a historical point of view. So that's where it started. And that's where my head was at, which sort of figures into the story, like the things that were swirling in my brain when I went to start researching and figuring out this story.
0: Now, I think when people think of Orthodox Jewish matchmakers, they're going to think of Yenta from Filler on the Roof, or even they might even think of Bravo's Millionaire Matchmaker when they think Mm -hmm. of matchmakers. But I love that you imbue Sarah Glickman, who's your matchmaker in the book, with a touch of magic when it comes to her Mm -hmm. abilities.
1: You know, I love stories with a little bit of magical realism. And I um, I love Alice Hoffman's work, especially. And that came... I don't know. You know, it sort of came out of when I, when you think about love, some of the sayings that we hear about love always have to do with vision and sight. And, you know, we say love is blind or we say love at first sight or we say you go on a blind date. And so it, I was just thinking about that a lot and it made me think that I wanted Sarah to have this gift of seeing other people's soulmates, but she would literally be able to see something, there would be some visual element. And so that is the magic that's in the story. It's very slight. um, But it's, but it's real, you know, for her, it's, it's a it's a thing that happens in the story. And I've never written anything with magical realism before. So it was a little bit of a departure for me. And I was nervous about it, but it felt so good to do it was it's it felt, I don't know, it just came pretty naturally, I think, because I've read so much of it. So it, it felt like something that I really wanted to try.
0: It also leads me to believe that maybe you're a hopeless romantic.
1: I don't know, you know, it's funny. <laughs> someone, there was one, one review on Goodreads really early on. And you know, they always say, don't read your, or don't read your reviews, right? But of course, when your, first book go, when your book first goes up on Goodreads or NetGalley or these different ways that readers can access it in an early way before it comes out, um, you have to look and see what they're saying. So someone wrote, OMG! Did I just accidentally read a rom com? <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> OMG! Did I just actually accidentally write something with like, like a rom- It's not a rom com, but did I accidentally write like like a rom com storyline in my story? Like I never, but I guess maybe a little bit, a little bit I did. You've got um, a mu-
0: a meat cute in there.
1: Yeah, there's a meat cute. There's a couple. There's a lot of meat cutes, right? I mean, some (laughs) of them are engineered. Yeah, there are a lot of vignettes in the story, sort of little romantic vignettes. But what I like is that they're all for other people. You know, they're not for my two main characters themselves. So, yeah, they're all they're there, but it's funny that 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 reader felt that way.
0: So, as you said, you approached it from a historical fiction point of view. So, Sarah has this. Quote unquote job of being a matchmaker in the early yeah. 1900s. Tell me what sort of research you did to get her character right, what matchmaking was like, and even what life was like in New York City at that time for Jewish immigrants.
1: Sure. When I first approached this story, I had to figure out the timeline first because it would have been really easy to make Sarah the grandmother character making matches in the 1950s. You know, everybody loves the 1950s. So I was sort of searching for my timeline and I had to do my research online because we weren't allowed to leave the house at that point. So I I turned to a lot of different um, museums and resources in New York. So the Eldridge Street Museum website, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, the Jewish Museum, the Tenement Museum, the New York Public Library, all of those I was scouring. And I found this piece called Love on the Lower East Side, which was just perfect um, at the, the Museum at Eldridge Street exhibit. And in that little virtual exhibit. They referenced um, a wedding from 1909. And the line that they stuck in there was <laughs> about the wedding itself, a very sort of um, interesting line about the wedding of a the daughter of a Romanian immigrant. And the father was called the pickle millionaire. So the line was, the scent of orange blossoms and roses mingled with the odor of dried herring and pickles. <laughs> this was at this <laughs> wedding. Um, and so I went to find out more about this wedding. And so that line actually came from a New York Times article in 1909. The New York Times covered this immigrant wedding on the Lower East Side. There were 2,000 people that went to it. It there, They needed police to keep the streets clear. It was this huge affair. And it was very... Um, Modern in that it was supposedly a match made without a matchmaker, and they referenced the Yiddish word for matchmaker in it. And when I read that whole article, I knew that was my time period. So I knew that I wanted Sarah to be arriving in New York in 1910, matching in the 1910s and 20s. But I also found something really interesting, which was a statistic that at that time, at 1910 in New York City, there were over 5,000 professional matchmakers, and the bulk of them were men. And so it was a real business. It was something, you know, people made their living this way. And the reason that the bulk of them were men was because it was a very serious business. And people wanted to deal with a man. You know, it, it wasn't the yenta that we all think of um, in the shuttle, you know, singing matchmaker, matchmaker. It was a really different kind of situation. And when I read that about the men, and I also found I, I couldn't find anything about a matchmaking union union in the United States, but I found some about matchmaking unions in Poland. And when I had all that information, it, you know, the conflict, the main conflict for Sarah just came, you know, in my head that she would be this young woman and she would be up against all these men. Um, and then of course it goes back to what I was thinking about around the dinner table with my daughter and her roommate, you know, like what is it like to be a woman in a man's world? And even then, what would it be like, you know, what is it like to be up against a bunch of men who resent you because you're a young woman and you're gifted and maybe can do their job better than they can. And that's sort of a timeless thing, right? It's like just being with my daughter and her roommate made me understand that how timeless it was, you know, like they're, they're worrying and thinking about the same things that I was worrying and thinking about when I was their age. And I assume that someone in the 1910s and twenties who was professionally minded, a young woman would be thinking the same thing. So it's like, Tale as old as time, you know, and so that was the research gave me just handed me all wrapped up in a bow, my conflict, you know, for my story, it really, it really made it very clear.
0: You know, reading about uh, Sarah's persistence against these, these male matchmakers, and knowing the time period, part of me was uh, saddened that this same fight is still going on in modern day. But at the same time, so proud that, you know, a woman who knows what she's doing and has her gift and can do it better, continued to do it in the way that she could because she was so good at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I like that, you know, she fights when she's a young girl. She does it. She doesn't even know really what she's doing because she's confused in the beginning. And then her family is very poor. They're living, you know, in a tenement on the Lower East Side. And she sort of eventually has a benefactor who is inspired by that that pickle millionaire. Um, he, I call him the pickle king in my story, but she matches his daughter. and But she's still not really getting paid. And at some point in the story, you know, she has this moment where her father has died. She's lost her brother. She's really in a position where she has to... Help her family make ends meet. And she's like, I need to be paid. I need equal pay. (laughs) Like, I need, I'm going to do this and I need equal pay. And that's it. Like, I'm not doing this for free anymore. And I'm serious about it. And this is what I have to do.
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there's a parallel storyline set in the 90s featuring her granddaughter, Abby, who just so happens to be in the opposite line of work, which as a divorce attorney.
1: Yeah, so yeah, so it's a dual timeline story. So we have Sarah in the 1910s and 20s, and then we have her granddaughter, Abby, who has very inconveniently inherited this gift because of her profession. She's chosen to be a divorce attorney because her own parents went through terrible divorce and that sort of she carries that trauma with her. And so she's very skeptical. She doesn't believe in marriage, really. She doesn't believe in love. She's heard her grandmother's stories her whole life. Um, and when the story opens, her grandmother has just passed away and she inherits the journals. So at first I thought about those file cabinets, you know, that I read about in that story. And, but... I changed them to journals for my story, but they are not diaries. You know, Abby is really actually disappointed at first when she gets her hands on them because she's thinking, Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to read my grandmother's diaries, but they're not diaries. They're just notes and like very, you know, business like ledgers about people and the matches that she's made. And there are some newspaper articles stuffed in there and some ticket stubs and different things, but it's really through reading those journals, that she understands that all those stories that she heard were actually real. She thought her grandmother was exaggerating. She thought she was just embellishing. But those things really happened. And then she finds the parallels sort of in her own life. And it's tough for her. This gift gets in the way of her career, which she has worked so hard for.
0: I can't help but feel you want readers to walk away with the sense that they should always try to be true to themselves in life and in love.
1: This novel was my most joyful novel. You know, my, my first two books were more sort of more serious. Um, and I really kind of want people to just walk away with a sense of joy too. You know, like I, definitely to to feel that strong woman kind of connection and to to follow their instincts, but also to just kind of walk away with some joy and a little bit of magic kind of, you know, filling them filling them up. Because this book got me through that very dark time, you know, all that worry that we were feeling. And I just, I don't know, I think we need stories like that, you know, that kind of take you away and just give you like a a joyful escape.
0: So does that mean your next book, you're going back to more serious matters?
1: No, I'm actually going, (laughs) um, yeah, no, I actually, I feel so happy about this book. I feel so proud of this story because so many readers have told me that it's brought them so much joy. And so I decided I was gonna move sort of in that direction again. And so my next book is also historical, but also has a little dash of magical realism to it. And it's, it's a fun story. It's, it's actually um, inspired by my husband's great grandmother, who was a female pharmacist. She graduated from pharmacy school in 1921, which you don't hear a lot about for women that age. And I've heard so many stories about her Um, she used to, apparently she doctored her certificates for years. And so she was practicing for like, she was a pharmacist. Like they all thought she was 60 when she was 70. They thought, you know, like she was really going for a long time, but, um, a pharmacy is an amazing setting for a story. Um, because you know, back then the pharmacists were, they were like your, your priest, your rabbi, your therapist, your bartender. It was an interesting thing to have a pharmacy in during Prohibition because they were one of the last places where you could have liquor, sell liquor legally, and doctors would write prescriptions for whiskey and stuff like that. So it's just there's a lot of elements that make it really interesting. And then, of course, you have all the medicines. But the, the, the character in that story is sort of caught between her father's um, absolute faith in medicine and strict, you know, measurements of medicine and this amount of this will help you make this better. Um, and then her relative sort of old world concoctions that she's like whipping up in her kitchen. <laughs> and, and so there's, you know, there are some of the same themes as the matchmaker's gift. There's the modern world and the new world versus the old. And, um, but there's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a fun story. There's a love potion that goes very wrong in that story.
0: Oh, see that, <laughs> that's you might be writing a rom-com. <laughs>
1: I know. I, I, well, maybe. It's sort of, I think it's sort of similar to this one. It's like, there's a, there is a more modern um, timeline, but it's the same character. It's, it's my main character when she's 80 years old and she sort of moves, she's a very reluctant retiree as my um, husband's, you know, great-grandmother actually was. And she moves to Florida and sort of runs into the man who got away. Um, But then it, you know, takes place mostly in her, during her own, you know, youth and pharmacy days, but
0: it's going to be fun. We're going to have to wait a little bit for that. But before then, we can all read The Matchmaker's Gift. Linda Cohen-Logman, thank you for your time today and for sharing that joyful story.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. So much fun to talk to you.
0: If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you might have already figured out that I'm a sucker for historical fiction novels featuring strong women whose stories have been lost to time. But what makes the new book from Christine Wells stand out is that her lead character is actually already a well-known fictional character. She shares why she was drawn to write One Woman's War, which introduces us to Patti Bennett, who happens to be one of the real-life women who inspired the James Bond character of Miss Moneypenny.
2: Well, I've always liked James Bond. I saw my first uh, movie when I was seven and uh, it was a bit of a funny story because my father was working down in Sydney. We live in Brisbane in Australia, which is two hours north of Sydney. And so mum and I and my brother went down to visit while he was working. And then we did the tour to a thing, and then Dad stopped working and joined us. And Mum said, "Okay, the kids are yours. <laughs> I'm going shopping." And um, rather than take us to a museum or something, he took us to see for we your eyes only. So <laughs> she was she was appalled, but uh, I enjoyed it, and uh, I think I've been a bit of a James Bond fan ever since. But uh, I became interested in the women's involvement in intelligence during World War II, and I was reading. About all the women in in Fleming's life, I think there was an article. And contrary to the women he tended to write about, the the women in his life were strong, intelligent, witty characters. So uh, I thought Paddy Bennett sounded like a terrific person, and she was involved in uh, as his secretary in World War II as in the British Naval operations. And she was also involved actively in Operation Mincemeat. It was a wartime deception that the British played a bit of a, a, a strange joke on the Germans and and it came off. So,
0: Now, in, in researching who she was and the role she played in that particular operation, was it easy to find details of her involvement? Did you really have to go digging and kind of be a spy yourself to get the information?
2: Oh, absolutely! I had to be a spy because uh, women like Patty. I mean, she was just a secretary. She she wasn't an officer. She wasn't a, didn't have an official role in Operation Mincemeat. So it was basically piecing together all of the surrounding details, as well as quite a few newspaper articles where she was interviewed because she was uh, awarded a Dame of the British Empire for her contribution to the war effort and uh, but of course all of those things are very secret and and a lot of the details are lost in time even when they do become declassified especially regarding women so uh, that's why I believe historical fiction is a great way to explore women's stories because there is such scant detail you really to to bring their story to life you have to fill in a lot of the gaps
0: I think I remember reading um, probably when it was in connection to a, a different historical novel about World War II and in, in Britain in particular with, with the um, the Secrets Act, with the basically non-disclosure agreement that they had to sign, where they weren't going to tell anybody uh, what they did. A lot of women really took that to heart. And even until the day they died, they never spoke about what they had done in the war.
2: Yes, absolutely. And uh, a lot of husbands and wives never knew that the other Uh, worked at Bletchley Park which was the decoding place the 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 fact that they had cracked the Enigma code was incredibly secret because of course the Germans would change what they were doing if they found out so you know so much valuable intelligence came through that Uh, it was just impressed on everyone they must keep everything secret and and in my novel, Patty keeps her involvement in Operation Mince Meat secret from her husband, which uh, does have the effect of uh, producing a bit of marital strife.
0: A little tension there. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I want to get back to Patty the woman because I wish I were more like her. This she was, uh, you know, straightforward, knew what she wanted, smart. And and really earn the respect of her male colleagues.
2: Yes, absolutely. Patty said she was half Irish and half Yorkshire, so the battle was terrific. And if you know anything about stereotypes of different countries in Britain, the Irish are supposedly hot tempered, and and the Yorkshire people are quite stolid and hardworking and diligent. So she had this dual uh aspect to her personality uh, personality but uh, she was quite redoubtable and something I couldn't put in the book but uh, that because it happened so much later was when she was in her 70s she foiled a mugging attempt the man was trying to get rings off her finger and she kicked him where it hurt and he ran away <laughs> and she said it was years of Ballet and some sturdy Marks and Spencer shoes. <laughs> so uh, that's the kind of character I was writing about. She was uh, very young. She was about twenty, and she was working for seven officers in the Directorate of Naval Intelligence, and she was uh, privy to very high-level operational information. And uh, I think in those days. Women were given the role of secretary, but if they had ability, they were actually doing the work of the officers as well. So uh, I think that she was university educated. She'd been to the Sorbonne in Paris, and uh, she was just a very bright and and forthright and no-nonsense individual.
0: (laughs) So of course, Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond novels, makes an appearance in your book. And- I think it's significant to point out that even though he and Patty worked together and he kind of had his, you know, groupies, put it that way, (laughs) the the relationship between them was strictly professional, which I learned in researching this interview isn't something the films necessarily lead you to believe between Bond and Miss Moneypenny.
2: No, that's right. I mean, I think in the books it was quite different, though. I think there was no flirtation between Moneypenny and and Bond in the books. Uh, But I just recall uh, in Casino Royale, the quote about Miss Moneypenny was, uh, she would have been alluring but for eyes that were direct and cool and quizzical. So I I thought, well, that's more Patty. I mean... Obviously, as a writer, you base your characters on all kinds of inspiration. And it did seem like a lot of people said, and there were a lot of newspaper articles uh, touting this as well, that Patty Bennett was Miss Money Penny, But then about five or six other women have claimed that honour as well uh, to varying degrees of accuracy. But uh, I, I really did think he based his his Bond books on his naval intelligence experience. It was that wartime piece of his life that he was talking about. M was clearly John Godfrey, the admiral he worked for in in the Navy. And, um, and so I just thought, you know, Patty really fits that deal.
0: Patty isn't the only uh, strong woman, female character we meet in your book. You also introduce us, to the character Friedel Stöttinger who's an Austrian double agent and is she real or is she fictional?
2: She's real yes. Uh, I came across uh, Friedel years ago when I was researching another book uh, and it was a book called Agent Fifi <laughs> and it was about Uh, Agent provocateurs in the war because what the British did often was get women to sidle up to somebody and and get information out of them. Use an attractive woman to do this, and uh, they employed in my five employed Friedel to to uh, suss out the the uh, the fifth column activity in. going on in Britain so she would pretend to be a Nazi she was an Austrian by birth but they actually changed her passport to make it German and she would extract information from people by pretending that she was one of them so uh, of course at the time the British didn't know the atrocities that Hitler was going to perpetrate although They certainly were aware of persecution of Jewish people. That was going on even before the war. Uh, But many of them were in sympathy with the Nazi cause and many of those people were dukes and very high up in society and powerful people. So Friedel had entree to all of this society uh, parties and so forth and, and she would come back with information for MI5 but she was also a double agent because she'd been recruited by the Nazis as well. And so the British used her to feed false information to her, her German handlers. So
0: I'm right at that point in your book where the two of them, Patty and Frieda, are on parallel paths and probably just about to come in contact with each other yeah. or at least have their paths kind of cross. Did that happen in real life or is that your your author's license?
2: Uh, I did fictionalise it a bit because what I realised and what many storytellers before me who have dealt with Operation Mincemeat have realised is that you need an antagonist in London to keep the story going while this operation takes place in another country. Uh, and not you know you can't you get news by telephone it's not not very interesting so I wanted to have a character who carried the story over to see what was happening over in in uh, the Iberian peninsula and Germany not not to get into what the operation was all about but uh, it was happening over there so that's Friedel's role. So uh, with apologies to Friedel, I gave her a bit of an active mission as well, one that she never actually had. Yes.
0: Although, you know, considering the type of person she was, she probably would not have shied away from it if it had come across her path.
2: That's right. She was uh, a real, real character. And uh, it's interesting because I was able to get access to her MI5 file Uh, through the National Archives, and it's about 112 pages, and it's full of her reports, uh, heavily redacted, uh, and also her superior superior officer's opinions of her. Uh, And it's very interesting to see all the different views because uh, her friend Joan Miller wrote a memoir, and she worked with her in, in MI5, and she thought Friedel was very intelligent and and good at what she did, as did uh, Dushko Popov, who was another agent she was working with. But a lot of the MI5 superiors said, "Oh, you know, wrote her off as a good time girl." Uh, and uh, <laughs> there's a funny story, but she used to be, always be out after curfew and scantily clad, and she was often rounded up with the ladies of the night and taken to the local <laughs> lockup. And she had to stay until morning when the her MI5 handler bailed her out. <laughs> so, you know,
0: your previous book also uh, delved into the role women played during World War II. That book was about the Paris resistance. Why do you feel compelled to tell these stories of these women?
2: I feel that they need to be rediscovered every couple of decades. I, I think people... They People know about them for a while and then they sort of go into obscurity and then it's good to remind people and then there are new, new people popping up all the time. Friedel was one whose identity wasn't really disclosed until much later, uh, maybe as late as early 2000s because the archives are being declassified all the time. Uh, we're finding out more about these amazing women who, who participated in World War II. And, I mean, I've always been attracted to the intelligence work because I find it fascinating the way people are so resourceful and and clever in the way they approach these very tricky issues. Uh, And it's great to see women who were really, for the first time, asked to step up and, and participate in jobs that were traditionally the men's preserve and really show what they were capable of. And there's a really great essay by one of the heads of the MI5 saying that women made the best spies because they didn't have the ego that led them to boast about their exploits and let things slip. They were very, very good at keeping secrets. They were very good at passing unnoticed in places that uh, men couldn't, especially in wartime France. I mean, an able-bodied young man is automatically suspicious because what's he doing there? He ought to be interned or you know clapped up in prison or off fighting. He he doesn't belong. So uh, they were very effective, and he he preferred to work with women.
0: You know, sometimes those lessons should be carried on through history, and they're not always, (laughs) but I digress. Christine, before I let you go, you know, this book was really great, really fun to read, Um, and I want to know, what are you working on next?
2: Oh, I have a new book coming out next year called The Royal Windsor Orphan, and it's about the uh, secret love child of Edward VIII, who was the king of England who abdicated the throne and a French courtesan. So, uh, yes. Ooh, sounds juicy.
0: (laughs) Good fun. (laughs) Well, in the meantime, people can pick up One Woman's War, a novel of the real Miss Moneypenny. Christine Wells, thank you for joining us early today. I know it's early in Australia where you are, but many thanks for for joining us long distance.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we meet a debut author whose new thriller is a fresh and totally different take on the woman-as-victim genre. Until then, you can always find us doing something on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.